We are going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, and we're going to be continuing with Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you turn to chapter 5, starting in verse 21, it says, you have heard it said that it was to those, or you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Okay, so that's our text. In the previous section, we kind of need to back up into that a little bit to get some context. Jesus has just told us some very important stuff about the law. And before I jump into that, I want to acknowledge that we... Uh, as, as Christians today and this, you know, where, you know, how we live now and where we live now and, and all this, we tend to distance ourselves, I think, from the law because we either think we're, we're now under grace, so that doesn't mean anything to us, or we think, you know, that was just some rules for a bunch of people, you know, weird rules for a bunch of people that lived thousands of years ago and it has nothing to do with me. But that's not completely accurate. Now, when it comes to the ceremonial law, I would agree with that. But when it comes to the moral and civil law, many of these laws have actually still, still found their way into our society today. We still are governed by many of these laws today. And so they, they do have relevance to it. We just need to kind of think about how that, that, that pertains. So all of us, um, when we think about like how God wants us to have, you know, live well and, and you know, good living, the idea of good living versus bad living, we might say law-abiding citizens versus criminals. We, we think of the law in those terms. So in last week's passage, Jesus said that he's not the law abolisher, but that he's the law fulfiller. So he's telling us some critical things here. First, he's telling us that the law is good. Um, God likes it when we live according to his commands. He, he likes right living. And the truth is, we like it too. I, I very much like, you know, a society without laws stinks. <laughs> it's terrible. So that's why Jesus isn't getting rid of it. For instance, his law says... Do not murder. Do not steal. Uh, when we watch the news and we see things like school shootings or we see people breaking windows and running into businesses and stealing stuff, that upsets us, doesn't it? Uh, we, 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 we don't like that. We like law and order. We sometimes refer to this aspect of the law. So if you've been here any length of time, we talk about three uses of the law. This pertains to the first use of the law, which is the idea that the law is a curb. Um, in other words, it's like, you know, what, when you're a bad bowler, what do they do for you? They put up those bumpers, right? So, that, so that, that's, what the, that's what the law is in this sense. The first use of the law is that it's a curb. It keeps society from going into the gutter, literally. And so in that sense, the law is good. And we're glad that Jesus didn't come to abolish it. It's good news if you're a law-abiding citizen. And if I were to say, how many of us identify as law-abiding citizens today? Most of us would raise our hands and say, hooray for us, the law-abiding citizens. Boo for the criminals, right? Um, here's the problem. We, we, we overestimate our law-keeping skills <laughs> a bit. We, we only think we're a little off. And so I, I've never, you know, captained a ship, but I know that uh, a ship, when it's going to go on a voyage across the ocean, it has instruments. 
And these instruments are pretty critical. If you're a little off, it becomes a problem. So one degree off on one of these instruments over a long journey, you don't think it is going to matter much, but what happens is as you keep going, pretty soon you're off in no man's land. You're not even close to your destination. You don't, you're not going to end up where you thought you were going to end up because you're just a little off. And that's how sin is for us. We don't think about it in those terms. We think we're just a little off. But you know what? God's standard is perfection. And so, you know, how many holes in a ship does it take to sink it? Just one. That, that's kind of the way the law works. We're, we're, we're further off than we think is the point. And in our text this morning, Jesus is going to drive this point home because inevitably there were there and there still are here today people who think that they're going to make it into heaven based on what they do. I have the ability to do this in a way that will please God and I'll get there. If you think about the crowd that he was addressing that day, it was filled with people who specialized in law keeping. Their whole life was about that. And they, they thought that was going to be their ticket to heaven. But people still have that same mindset today. If you ask most people why they will be allowed to go to heaven, what will they say? Because I'm a good person. That's, what they, we, we, that's the way we think. And that's pretty normal. We, we tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. I am my biggest fan. I'm, I'm, I excel at thinking more highly of myself than I should. I'm great at it. Um, you know those memes? Have you ever seen those, those memes that are like, this is what I think I look like and this is what I actually look like? I couldn't help but think of this. There's like, it'll show something like, you know, this is what I think I look like when I'm dancing and it'll show Fred Astaire and then it'll say, this is what I actually look like and it's like Elaine from Seinfeld. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. Our perception isn't quite right. We think we have way more ability than, than we really do. And this is what Jesus is going to address as he gives us six practical areas of the law that we think we're doing pretty well in. And, and the first one that we're going to look at today is anger, but then he's going to cover lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving our enemies. These all have to do with the way we treat each other, by the way. And his sermon is really meant to crush anyone thinking that they have the ability to measure up to God's standard. It's meant to force you to realize you can't do it. And that's why Jesus says it this way in verse 20. He says, if you look back, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. So he takes those who are, who are considered, who we think of as the holiest in the group, the scribes and the Pharisees. They were experts when it came to the law of God. They had devoted their whole lives to him. They knew their Bibles better than anybody else. He takes those guys and he says, okay, compare yourself to them. Their righteousness can beat up your righteousness. And theirs isn't good enough to get into heaven. That's his point. That's what he's saying. So where does that leave us? If they can't make the cut, what do we do? And he even, he even doubles down, like if you're already feeling bad, at the end of this section, he, this is what he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So like, thank you, sir, may I have another? That's what he's like, really? It's, oh, is that all? Just, just be perfect like God's perfect. Okay, I'll get started right away. You know, roll up your sleeves. And Who can do that? No one can. That's his point. And so you, then you start to think, well, what's Jesus doing? Is he just taunting us right now? Is it like, you know, ah, neener, neener, you can't do it. No, that's not who Jesus is. He's not like that. So this might sound like a harsh thing that he's, that he's saying, but it's actually incredibly gracious. He's letting us know our ship is off course before it's too late. He's, he's letting you know your true predicament before it's too late. And I'm grateful that he does that. And this brings us to the second use of the law. The first use is that it's bumpers or a curb. The second use of the law is that it's a mirror. It's a mirror that shows us what we are really like 
and how short we really fall from God's holy standard. And the interesting thing is the Old Testament was like a mirror that kind of showed us the outward sin, but Jesus is taking that mirror and he's like putting it into x-ray mode in the New Testament. He's changing it to where now when you look in it, you're not just seeing what goes on on the outside, but you're actually seeing what goes on the inside too, which is not helpful if you're trying to be, you know, convince yourself that you can do this. Um, you remember how Fer- that Jesus talked about the Pharisees? He said, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're, you're like cups that look clean on the outside, but inside they're gross. You know, you're like tombs that look good, but you're full of bones and dead things. It's gross on the inside because Jesus could see their hearts. We tend to only concern ourselves with outward actions, the stuff people can see. But it's the inward stuff that's actually worse. And, and, and Christ is letting us know this so that we understand that his requirement is pureness on the inside and the outside. And he's letting us know that God sees it all. You know, it's like, aren't you glad you came to church today? It's, it's going to get better. Hang in there. <laughs> Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So everything goes on our rap sheet, the outward stuff and the inward stuff that nobody sees, which means the situation is far worse than we might have imagined. And now all of a sudden, because of our inability to be law-abiding citizens, like we just thought we were a minute ago, we're going to go, okay, wait a second, Jesus, can we go back to that whole abolishing the law thing that you talked about? Can we do that? I'd like to sign up for that program where you came to abolish the law because this isn't good for me. That's not going to happen though. You know, we love the law until it comes after us and then we want it to go away. (laughs) That's how we work. (laughs) The cop, the ex-cop laughs. Yeah, you know it's true. Yeah, we want God to look the other way, don't we? Of course, the problem with that is that God wouldn't be just if he did that. Can you imagine a judge who did this? You know, I know you robbed a bank, killed a couple of hostages, blew up the building, but I'm a law abolisher. I don't care about that stuff. You're free to go. You know, that would be a terrible judge, would it not? And God is not a terrible judge. He is perfectly just and perfectly holy, so he cannot turn a blind eye to our sin. And so this is our predicament. The law is great for society, but it's horrible for salvation because we are not good law keepers. And, and that's why the next part of what Jesus says becomes such good news for us. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but you know what I did come to do? Fulfill it for you. We couldn't keep it, but he could. And so Jesus satisfies all of the righteous requirements of the law for us. He accomplishes what we can't accomplish on the cross. So all our works fall short, his don't. And so when you think about the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees he was talking about, he does surpass those combined. You could take all of them combined and his righteousness surpasses those. And he says, you know what? I'm willing to give you my righteousness. I'm willing to take your sin and I'm willing to give you my righteousness. This is the gospel. This is the good news of that. So that we can now enter the kingdom of heaven with a verdict of not guilty when we place our trust in Jesus and his work for us. I love this. It can all be summed up nicely by one of my favorite quotes from from Tim Keller. Uh, He says this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. What good news that is, is it not? Jesus is our only hope of fixing our rap sheet. 
it gets nailed to the cross when we come to faith. When we repent of our sins, confess our sins, and confess our desperate need, and believe that his work on the cross is the only thing that can solve that, that gets taken care of. And so that kind of prepares us for our text today as far as what Jesus is doing with this topic of anger. Verse 21 starts out with the famous words, you have heard it said, but I say, and so in other words, he's saying, you, you think this is what it means, but I'm about to give you the intended meaning. And I don't want you to miss the fact that Jesus is taking the law, which was given by God, and expanding it. So, so he's basically saying this, God said this, but I say, now don't misunderstand that. Who can do that? Who can do that? Only God can do that. That's, you ask any Jewish person if they understand what was taking place here. I hear people, the reason I'm bringing this up is I hear people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, he did. <laughs> he did right here. Again, you can't say, hey, God said this, but I say, unless you're God. All right, so that was just free of charge. That has nothing to do with the text, but there you go, because it just drives me mad. He did claim to be God. Okay. So there's no difference between the voice that spoke to them on Mount Sinai and the voice that's speaking to them on this mount today. Understand that. So he says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, which is simply restating the sixth commandment, something we're all familiar with. This is almost universally understood and agreed upon. Murder is bad. Now I say that, but I also hedge my bets because abortion is one of those areas where we see this taking place in society today where people try to pretend like that's not murder. And so you could argue with me, but, but the reason they get away with that, if they don't get away with it, but the reason that they think this is because they, they, they don't believe it's a life. You know, the minute you say it's not a life, then you can say it's okay, because it doesn't matter. If it is a life, then it's murder. And that's the, you know, that's, a, but, but we all tend to agree typically murder is wrong, that it should be, um, deserves swift judgment. We all kind of agree with that. I remember growing up as a Roman Catholic, I thought this was the bar to strive for, you know, don't kill people. As long as I, and I know that sounds bad, but I, I really thought that. As long as I don't kill anybody, I, I'm gonna go to heaven. And, and I, I liked that. It was a really low bar, but th that's the perfect bar for me because it, it allowed me to do everything else I wanted to do pretty much, as long as I didn't do that. And that's often our mindset, unfortunately. What's the most I can get away with and still go to heaven? But then Jesus comes along and says that everyone who is angry with his brother or insults his brother or calls him a fool is guilty and deserving of God's judgment. <laughs> well, that changes everything because I specialize in that stuff. I do that kind of stuff all the time. That puts the bar completely out of reach. Every one of us is guilty of that. Some of you are guilty of it today. Don't nudge anybody or look at them right now. But I know what Sunday mornings, Sunday mornings are one of the, isn't it funny? You know, we're going to church, get in the car. You know, you, this, this weird, I remember having kids and trying to get them all going the same direction at the same time. Um, yeah. So Jesus holds up the x-ray mirror and he shows us what's lurking inside. The root of what becomes murder resides in our hearts. Is that kind of terrifying to think about? And, and I want to say, no, that's not, that's not true. But then I think about my heart sometimes and what comes up. And when I get mad at somebody, this, this thing happens and I go, oh. I mean, when you really, it's like, that's scary stuff. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 15, verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. From, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. 
So we don't always see our anger as sin. Uh, if you're like me, you, you, you justify it because it's me. I, I, I'm right. So this can't be, this can't be sinful because I'm always right when it comes to this kind of stuff. And so I, I, again, I have such a high view of myself that I feel like I have the right to be angry. I was really surprised when, when Joy and I um, did our premarital counseling. They used to do a test. I want to say Briggs and Stratton. I always want to say that, but I think that's an engine. And this was Myers, Myers-Briggs, I think is what it was called. I probably would have done better on the Briggs and Stratton test, and I don't even, I don't even work on engines. But, but we took this test, and it was meant to show you all the areas that you need to watch out for. It could be landmines in your marriage. And I remember thinking, oh, this will be no problem. I'm, you know, I'm a great guy. Uh, the problem was my, in the area of anger, it, it went off the page. I mean, it was amazing to see, you know, this chart and like, whoa, anger. I didn't even know I was angry. I remember the counselor kind of, okay, Brent, you have what we call a little anger problem here. Um, and I didn't know it. That's kind of scary. And in hindsight, I see it, but at the time I didn't. You know, now I can look back and think, yeah, you were stinking angry. Then I ask the question, you know, what, what causes that? What causes us to have this anger inside of us, to be, become so enraged? And so I thought it would be helpful for me to come up with a few examples that I've seen in, in some of you guys. Um, these aren't, these aren't, they don't have anything to do with me at all. It's just, <laughs> just stuff I've seen in, in other people. It's actually a list about me, if I'm being honest. So these are the kinds of things that make us angry. If somebody insults me or offends me, I get angry. If somebody makes a fool of me or, or makes fun of me or makes me feel small, I get angry. If somebody hurts my feelings, this one really bothers me. If somebody interrupts me, I, I, this one, I don't know why. And again, what it comes down to, it's like, do you realize who's speaking right now? Do you realize the wisdom that you're missing out on by interrupting me? I mean, this is what, it's, it's gross. But when somebody interrupts me, I get mad. If people ignore me or act like my opinion doesn't matter, they don't value my input, I get mad. If somebody wastes my time, because you know how important my time is, it's valuable, and you would waste such time, it's a, this is the thing. If somebody inconveniences me, and this can go a lot of ways. I mean, it was funny, I'm driving here to church this morning, and, and somebody can, pulls out a thousand trails with a trailer and a truck, and I'm doing 50, because that's the speed limit. I certainly wasn't doing 55. And I remember there, there's that thing in my heart started to come up, like, you dared, you know, and it's like, oh, you're preaching on this, Brent. So I'm... <laughs> I backed off, and, but that idea that you would, you, know, you would take my parking place, you would inconvenience me, you would whatever it is. If somebody cheats me or takes advantage of me, if somebody tells me that I'm wrong, my opinion is wrong, or my way of doing things is wrong, I get angry. And I think it's right for me to feel that way. Isn't that weird? I mean, when you, when you just read it, you think, well, gross. Who would be like this? I'm like this. What is the root of this? Where does this come from? And this is the part that hurts because it comes down to this view I have of myself as being far more important than I am. It comes down to selfish pride. It comes down to an idea that I deserve better. You know, we, I'm an older generation now. I, I, I've, I've embraced the fact that I'm, I'm an old guy. Um, we, we, we pick on the young people, the whippersnappers, and say, you guys are entitled you have this entitlement thing. You think everything should just be handed to you. And then I look at this and I go, you know what they call this, Brent? When you think you deserve better than you're getting, there's a word for it. Sounds a lot like entitlement. That's what it is. We get angry when we feel like God owes us a better life than we have. 
I can picture this conversation. It's like, I imagine, you know, I go before God and I plead my case with him and say, you know what, God, I've been getting the short end of the stick in life. You know, I've looked around and I'm seeing what other people are getting and I'm not getting what I deserve. And I, and I want, I want to, you know, and at this point I kind of picture Jesus poking his head around the corner going, I couldn't help but overhearing, did you just say, you're not getting what you deserve, Brent? Because I'm pretty sure I took what you deserved on the cross. I'm pretty sure I handled that. You want it back? I don't think you do. I don't think you do. And that's the part that, you know, it's just so sobering. And then it's like, no, wait a minute. On second thought, no. No, God, I don't want what I deserve. Not at all. Sorry for the interruption. You know, get out of there fast. (laughs) All of a sudden, the anger, the entitlement that I'm feeling just melts away into gratitude into humility, into thankfulness that Jesus saved a wretch like me. My perspective changes completely. Every once in a while, we just need to step back and say, who do I think I am? And get a good look at ourselves. For me to feel justified in in hatred and anger towards another person means that I have such a high view of myself. How dare somebody treat me poorly? You know, Jesus was treated more poorly than I will ever be. And nobody had the right to treat him that way. I can't say that. I I probably deserve most of the poor treatment I receive. (laughs) And yet, Jesus, you know, was treated so much worse and he didn't get angry and he didn't retaliate. And yet, somehow I feel the, the right to my anger. I feel the right to retribution. That is sinful and arrogant pride. It needs to be confessed as sin and repented of. And if you need a gauge to know when you've gone too far with your anger, you know, one of the things, Jesus gives us some helpful hints here um, with the words, uh, he talks about insult, but it's really the word raka and fool. The moment a conversation devolves into name calling and insults, anger has entered the building. Hatred has filled your heart. According to scholar A.B. Bruce, raka expresses contempt for a man's mind and fool expresses contempt for a man's heart and character. So raka was a derogatory expression that meant a person was empty-headed. You were basically calling them stupid and inferior. We might use words like moron or idiot. You know, there's a lot of different words right now um, that you can use, but the same idea, you know, buffoon. I like that one. That's a fun one. I always think of Bugs Bunny when he say, what a maroon. I don't even know what that means, but it, it was an insult. <laughs> but this idea is that when you put these words together, they imply that somebody is worthless, good for nothing, they have no value. They are a waste of space. And if you want a crash course on what this looks like, just spend an hour looking at the comment sections on social media, especially political threads, and you will learn all kinds of new and creative ways to just spew hate at people. And what becomes very plain very quickly is that the person doing the insulting sees themselves as greatly superior. They are better smarter, more valuable, and you don't deserve to be in their presence. This is how it comes across. Can you see why Jesus hates this? Why why he despises anger and why he doesn't want his people to be this way at all? Which is why in verse 22, he points out the judgment that can result from this kind of unrepentant anger and aggression in our lives. Angry people will face the consequences of alienating their friends and family and everyone else. No one wants to be around that guy. It's like they would, you know, you see them coming and you're just like, oh, here we go. Nobody wants to be around that person. 
Another judgment, he talks about they might end up before the council, which was the Sanhedrin. We would say court. We could face legal consequences and end up in jail because anger escalates things quickly and it causes sane people to do really stupid things. I mean, road rage, and again, I already alluded to it, so I'm tipping my hand, but it's amazing what I will do in a car when somebody does something. I'll get right up on them. I'm mad. I mean, what am I going to do if they stop? You know, heaven forbid they ever stop and get out of their car. I'll just put it in reverse and drive drive home, I guess. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I get so mad that this kind of stuff will end you up in, in jail. The final judgment is the worst one. Jesus mentions that what they're doing could cause them to stand before God and end up in hell. So let's recap. What does anger get us? Loss of friendship, loss of freedom, loss of eternal life. This is where the fruit of anger takes us. It's something to be taken seriously, which is why the Bible tells us to be to deal with it early and often. So the, the famous verse that you guys are aware of, and it's just a good one to learn, is Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. It literally means don't give a foothold or a base of operation because Satan loves your anger. When you're angry, he he, he can work you like a puppet. So deal with it quickly is what's being said there. Now somebody might ask the question, is anger always wrong? And the answer is no. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Jesus expressed this kind of anger. We would see it when he would go in, uh, when they were taking advantage of people in, in, the, in the temple, you know, the money changers and that kind of thing. We, we saw that. We would see him get angry when, when people were leading others astray. He talks about, it'd be better if you'd have a millstone tied around your neck than to lead one of my, my precious children away. Um, we see him get angry about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. This came out of Jesus sometimes, and, and it, was, it wasn't sinful for him to be the way he was. And the truth is, we should also be angry over those same things. Other things as well, things like racism. That should anger us when we see one of God's create, creation, you know, somebody equal you know, with the image of God, being treated wrongly. Sex trafficking should infuriate us. You know, I already mentioned abortion. That, that, that should make us angry when we see these kinds of things happening. But being angry over sin and injustice is not the same thing as being angry over people violating me and, 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 and doing things, you know, making me, you know, but that's what usually what stirs our anger. It's not this righteous thing. It's, it's the selfish thing. So here are some good questions to ask yourself to determine if you're experiencing sinful anger or righteous anger. Is my anger present because the glory and character of God is being besmirched or because my glory and character is? Is my anger for the defense of others or for the defense of self? Is my anger and hate directed at sin or is it directed at people? You know, the old adage, love the sinner and hate the sin. So not all anger is sin. Unfortunately, most of mine is. Then you might also, somebody, somebody else might ask the question, what about victims of abuse or violent crime? Shouldn't they have the right or, or be allowed to be angry at their abuser? And I would just say it would be weird if they weren't. Um, but to live in a perpetual state of anger is extremely unhealthy for you and for those around you. And so we need to get to the place where we can take this idea of vengeance is mine, I will repay. We need to take it out of our inbox and put it into God's inbox. Let him take care of that. Trust him to do that. Because it will eat, eat, I've seen it eat people alive. If you've been hurt and wronged by somebody, 
hand it to God and trust him to deal with it at the appropriate time and in the appropriate way. Okay, so some practical observations that we see in this passage. Um, The first one is this. Angry people do not submit to the sovereignty of God. Uh, Jesus actually modeled the very opposite of this for us. And Peter talks about this in his book when when he says this about Jesus when he was dying. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It means he kept trusting the Father, even though he had every right to be angry at what was going on, it seems. But he didn't let anger dictate his actions. Instead, he trusted the Father's plan and submitted himself fully to it. This is easier said than done. But again, you need to ask yourself that question. Am I trusting God with my circumstances or am I using my anger to try to control my circumstances? It's the difference between saying thy will be done and my will be done. Do you believe that you control the outcome or that God controls the outcome? If we believe we control the outcome, we will get angry when things don't go the way we want them to. But if we believe God controls the outcome, we will trust him no matter what. Come what may, we will trust him. And I'm learning slowly, but surely learning to go with the all-knowing, all-powerful, loving God who knows me and wants what's best for me. And, and I don't think it should be that hard, but when I, you know, it's like, okay, who could I trust in this? I can go with me or I can go with God, you know? It's like when you really weigh it out, Brent, you know, which one's better? It's like, this shouldn't be a hard thing for me. He might be a little bit better equipped you know, to deal with these things. <laughs> the, the cool thing is, I mentioned that my anger used to be off the charts. And, and now it's, it's just cool to, to look back and see how God has dealt with that over the years. To the point now where my kids get upset with me when I don't get angry about things. They're like, why don't you get more angry, Dad? You should be mad about this. I'm not. And I don't know why I'm not. But it's, it's, it's certainly proof that God is transforming me and not, you know. This is what I've noticed, and this is key. The more I trust him, the less angry I am. The more I trust him, the less angry I am. If you find yourself watching the news or watching whatever, something like, and, and your anger just starts to boil, the more I trust him, the less angry I am. So here's the next one. Anger doesn't work. This should be obvious, but we already determined that, the, that the, the wages of anger are loss of friendship, loss of freedom, and loss of eternal life. But somehow we still think that this is a tool in our arsenal. You know, I can pull this out and make things happen with my anger. James 1.20 says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We might think it works because it can feel good to blow off some steam. Sometimes you can kind of intimidate somebody in, in a way, you know, push them around a little bit and get your way. Um, doesn't mean it's working. <laughs> You know, I remember having customers like this when I used to be in the copier repair world. Um, prior to doing this, I was, I was the, the copier fix-it guy. And I remember customers would always call in, and there were those guys that thought, if I just scream loud enough, and if I throw a big enough tantrum like a little child, I'll get my way. And every once in a while, I had to go and take care of that. You know, my boss would say, yeah, I just go, you know, deal with it. But if I had the choice, you know, where they went on my list of things to do that day? all the way to the bottom, which is spiteful of me, and that's wrong too, so don't, don't do that. But there's this thing about human nature. When, when somebody treats you with kindness and respect, where do you, you put them at the top of your list. When somebody just treats you like this, I'm not going out of my way for you, fella. 
And, and here's the thing, is I can think back when I've done this. You know, I've used my own anger and passive aggressiveness, which I kind of, and I want to brag, but I'm pretty good at it. Um, I, it's, it's, it's terrible, but I can use this as a weapon. I can call in to somebody that's messed up my bill or, or you know, charge me for something they shouldn't have, and I can shred them to the point where they're almost, you know, whimpering as they, as they you know, okay, here, we'll fix your bill. And I walk away like, yeah, look at me go. I've also used love and respect and kindness to accomplish the exact same thing. I've seen both work, but guess which one I'm ashamed of? I mean, guess which one reflects the reality of Christ in me? It's no question. Our anger beats people down. It tears them apart. It ruins relationships with those we care about. Our anger results in great sin and destruction. But love and kindness does just the opposite. It draws people to Jesus. It's so cool if you've ever been in a situation where somebody expects you to be angry because that, you know, the, the situation, they know you're in the right and they're in the wrong and they expect you to be angry and instead you show them kindness. The look on their face, the reaction. I've had customer service reps when I did it the right way, not the wrong way, just say, thank you so much for, you know, and they, my email's Pastor Brent, that helps. But thank you so much for treating me kindly. Most people don't do that. And, and it, it just, it's like a breath of fresh air that came in the room when we do it the way he wants us to. And here's the, the, the cool thing. When we treat somebody with kindness instead of anger, it's what Jesus did for us. This should just be a natural thing that flows out of us because of him. So anger doesn't work. Kill him with kindness, right? Honey works better than vinegar. We know this, but remember it. The next observation is this. No one is worthless no one is worthless. Nobody should be called a waste of space because we're made in the image of God and we have incredible value because of that. Calling somebody made in God's image a worthless idiot is disrespecting who? God, the creator. And here's the thing, if Jesus sees enough value in sinners to go for the cross for them, and if Jesus is willing to assuage his anger over the things we've done, can we not do the same thing? Should we not do the same thing for the people around us? I want you to just think about how many people right now think of themselves as a waste of space. They see themselves as having no value. The suicide rates are through the roof. It's nuts. And are we, through our speech, going to egg them on? Are we going to encourage that mindset in the way we talk to people and treat people? You have no idea what you're saying, how it's going to affect that person when you're saying it. They might leave that conversation and do who knows what. We have the opposite effect on them when we, when we tell them about the value they have as an image bearer of God. And that's what we need to, to remind people of in the way we treat them and the way we speak to them. And that brings us to the last point, which is the high value that God puts on human relationships. Jesus gives us two examples in this passage of someone going to worship and of someone going to court. And in both instances, he, he um, emphasizes the priority of repairing our relationships with those we're at odds with. As Christians, we would all say we put a very high value on human life, right? We're advocates when it comes to, you know, we're against abortion, we're against suicide, we're against euthanasia. But do we put that same high value on human relationships? According to what Jesus is teaching in this passage, we should care about those. We should care about relationships that are injured and dying in our lives, and we should, we should try to restore those. Now, before I go too far down this road, I want to acknowledge this isn't always easy, and I know a lot of you have been in situations where you have done everything you can to try to restore relationships with people in your lives, and good on you for that if you have. So I'm not trying to beat you up and say, you know, 
I'm not trying to put a burden on you. Sometimes this, this is out of our control. We try everything we can, and we, we're still trying. And they haven't been restored yet. I'm hopeful that they still will be. But I'm not, I'm not talking about that. The truth is that there are many times we can reconcile these broken relationships. I just had a situation um, a couple of weeks ago where uh, so my oldest son reached out to his cousin. We haven't seen this, this kid in years. He's, he's 32 years old now. He's not a kid anymore. But he was 12 or so when he left. He was kind of a problem, problem kid, and, and uh, you know, he, he moved to go be with his dad or something like that, and we just kind of lost track of each other. Now, in my mind, what I did was I said, he's, he's mad at us, he hates us, he wants nothing to do with us. Well, guess what he did in his mind? Exact same thing. And my son talked to him, and he said, no, I, I just thought you all hated me. I thought you wanted nothing to do with me. Well, the minute I heard that, it's like, I know exactly what I need to do right now. And so I texted him. And I let him know I love you. I miss you. Sorry. And, and, I, and I want a relationship with you. And he said the same thing back to me. I love you. I miss you and I want that relationship. And it's like, yes, that is so awesome when that happens. Whew, sorry. It's, you know, in the example of the worshiper, Jesus points out that it should be hard to worship when we know there's somebody out there holding a grudge against us, when we know that there's somebody at odds with us, it should be hard for us to worship. It should eat at us. And we have a tendency, you know, when, when we uh, don't want to deal with stuff like this, to focus on more important things like worship. It'd be so easy to justify this. Well, I'm here worshiping. You know, that can wait. This is more important. We had a, a kid like this. I won't name him because he's not here anyway, but I said he's a guy already, so it's down to two, but... <laughs> Anyway, he, he, was, he specialized in this. You would say, we want you to do your schoolwork. And then an hour later, you would see him emptying the garbage. And, and you go, what are you doing? I'm emptying the garbage. Did you do your schoolwork? No, but look at what I'm doing. I also, I also pet the dog or whatever. You know? And it's like, wow, those are all good things, son. Great. You know, great. Did you do your schoolwork? Nope, haven't got to that yet. It's like, okay, guess what we really want you to do right now? <laughs> and and, and this, is, this is this thing we do. We, we, um, we find good things to do. But at the end of the day, if the Holy Spirit has made you aware of a situation that he wants you to tend to, guess what he wants you to do? <laughs> Get on it, right? As my dad used to say, don't dilly-dally. Get on it. It can be really hard to do this, by the way. I don't want to minimize that. I know it's hard to go to somebody that you know is angry with you, especially if you don't think you've done anything wrong and, and, and that they don't have a right to be angry with you. It's hard to do this. So real quickly, here's just a few tips. Don't go in hot. <laughs> yeah, you know, we do this like, okay, I'll go talk to them. But the minute they, you know, if you don't go in hot, that's not going to go well. Humble yourself. Breathe, right? Remind yourself of what Jesus did for you before you go. The other thing you want to do is pray. Pray for your heart. Pray for their heart. Commit it to prayer before going. Be prepared to take the high road. Just, just have that mindset already before you go. Be ready to take the high road and make sure that you clean your side of the street. That's all you can do sometimes. You can't clean their side for them. You can only take care of your side. But you wanted to make sure you do that. And then lastly, just be willing to apologize for what you've done. Now, maybe you're not the one that's the most wrong, but you've done something. You've added to this. It's okay to apologize for that. And when you do that, make sure you don't use the word but. An apology that has the word but in that sentence is not an apology. You're just saying, hey, I'm sorry, but let me tell you all the reasons why I'm not sorry. Let me tell you all the reasons why I'm perfectly right. And what, I mean, that's what you're doing. So make sure that that word stays out of it. Once you've done all that you can, you can have a clear conscience before the Lord. 
and, and your, your job is done. You're free to go and enjoy worship again. You're, you're free to go back to the things and, you know, with a clear conscience before God. In the example of the person being taken to court, Jesus instructs us to be persistent to resolve these matters quickly and, and, and basically work on it up until the last minute. Continue to work on it until you can't work on it anymore. So he's saying, but right, as, as you're walking up the courtroom steps, keep working on it. Keep trying. Because it would be better for everybody to settle this matter before you, you, you get to that point. Right? Because then anger is pretty much guaranteed. Don't let anger and pride get the better of you because it has a way of blinding us and it has a way of causing us to do unreasonable things. And I love what he says here. It's like, it's better for you to swallow your pride, quell your anger, admit your fault, apologize, and do what you can to make amends because you don't know what the judge is going to do. He could find you at fault. And then you could end up angry, in jail, and with a fine. You know, how do you like that? It's like, it could get worse for you. And it's always helpful for me to think about our Savior at times like this. He had every right to take me to court. He had every right to make me stand before a judge, but instead he put a priority on relationship and on reconciling me to God. And 2 Corinthians 5 says that God doesn't count my trespasses against me because I've been reconciled to him through Christ. And then it says that he's given us that same job. Do you know that you've been given a job? You're part of the Department of the Ministry of Reconciliation Department. You know, it's like, that's a pretty good, sounds like a great title, doesn't it? Get some business cards made up. And the idea is that you know how to reconcile people to God now too. And through your reconciliation with people, you can also, you know, it's this wonderful thing of we have the message of reconciliation. So in this section on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has used the law as a mirror to show us how short we fall from being able to attain righteousness on our own. Anger is a serious sin. It's on par with murder because they come from the same place. We may not be guilty of murder, but, but each one of us is guilty of this anger that Jesus has described. And, and, and therefore, we're also, you know, we deserve the ensuing judgment that comes from it. And we should feel the weight of that. That's what the law is meant to do as a mirror. It's, it's meant to, 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 for you to feel the weight of that. But then once you feel that, well, now what? And here's the cool part. Now what? Flee to Jesus. He is the answer. Run to him for grace and forgiveness, knowing that he has fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law for you, and he's willing to take your sin and transfer his righteousness to you. It's already been accomplished. We receive that through faith in his works for us, not our works for him. That's the good news of the gospel. And that brings us to the, the, last, um, the last use of the law. I said there's three uses, so curb, mirror, and the last one is for those who are in Christ. The law now becomes a guide. It's a guide for us to follow. It's not a system of salvation. This is assuming salvation has already taken place. So we, we can't earn God's favor through the law. We can't keep God's favor through the law. But you know what it is now? It's, just, it's an act of worship. It's an act of obedience to our Father who loved us. We get to. So it's not duty. Jesus took care of that part for us. It's delight. And so we get, we get to do this thing now where we don't, we don't have to walk in anger anymore. Jesus made it clear how he feels about anger. It has no place in his kingdom. And it has no place in his kingdom people. And we don't have to walk in that. We can walk in love instead. And in fact, he said, all men will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. What an opportunity that we have to, to show something different to behave differently because Jesus is in us. If Christ is in us, that, that this love should flow out of us to the people around us. Do people see the love of God in you? 
Do people see the love of God in this church? I pray that they do. I pray that we have more and more opportunity for that. And, that, and as the world becomes this darker place that it seems to be becoming, that this love of God in his church, in his kingdom people, would, would shine out and would affect the lives of the people around us so that they can be reconciled to God too. Amen? Okay. Father, thank you so much for this passage. Uh, thank you for the, what it teaches us, Lord. I pray that if there's anybody here now that's felt the weight of the law just bearing down on them, that they would flee to Jesus, that they would bow before him and confess their need for him as Savior, and that, that you, would, um, you would reconcile them to yourself through, through the work of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that for each of us that is a kingdom person already, that, that you would um, help us to deal honestly with our anger before you, to confess it as sin and to repent of it, Lord, and to allow your Holy Spirit to just shine that light of love that, that you've given us to those around us. Thank you for the opportunity that we have in that regard as a church. Uh, help us to be a beacon of that in this, in this community, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.